All right, going to be Luke chapter 6 this morning. Luke chapter 6, continuing our series, Jesus for Everyone. And uh, this text this morning may be uh, the most obvious example that Jesus is for everyone that we'll get in this entire, uh, this entire book. Uh, pretty simple text, honestly, not a lot to it, but uh, I think that there'll be a lot that we can learn from it. And our narrative is kind of taking a bit of a turn so far we've been uh, Luke kind of begins by talking about the birth narrative of Jesus, and then he kind of transitions into the early ministry of Jesus, uh, and then he'll move into kind of this larger teaching section of Jesus's life, and today's text is kind of the transition point out of the early establishment of his ministry uh, into the, the longer uh, teaching section. We'll start next week, what's known as the Sermon on the Plain. And if you're thinking, I thought it was the Sermon on the Mount, well, that's Matthew. Sermon on the Plain is Luke. Uh, but there are going to be a lot of similar teachings, a lot of things that he says that are, uh, that are similar between the two. We'll talk about that next week. I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Uh, but today's text is kind of the transition point in Luke's gospel where he moves from the establishment of his early ministry days to the, the bulk of his teaching. And so that's going to be in Luke chapter 6, uh, and we'll eventually get to verse 12, which is where we will uh, we'll spend our time this morning. I told you before that Revolutionary War, period to, to study about it, kind of geek out about it a little bit. There's so many parts about it that I find fascinating and complex and uh, often find myself kind of wondering how I would have responded if I were a pastor in, in the colonies during that time, if I were a soldier, if I were, uh, if I were a businessman, how I would have, have processed the revolution, how I would have reacted at, were I around in 1776 to see it and to be uh, apart. If you study Revolutionary War history, one of the things that becomes so frequent uh, that even those that would, would say that they don't believe in God at all uh, kind of give a nod to some un, unknown providential stuff that just happens uh, in the Revolutionary uh, in the Revolutionary War. But kind of, it, it becomes kind of undeniable, this continual way that things just so happened to happen at the uh, right time, at just the right moment. If you look at, uh, if you if you look at just one battle uh, or kind of a series of battles that happens uh, in New York City on Manhattan, kind of the the siege of New York City. There's story after story where things happen in just the right uh, just the right moment, and almost all scholars agree that September 1776 was almost the end of the revolution. So you've got, you've got the, 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 the declaration that happens that summer, uh, and then you have kind of the earliest days of conflict that happen in New York City, and most agree that, that the war was almost over before it began. If not, uh, if, if, if not almost over, it should have been uh, over, but some unusual decisions by British officers, some perfectly uh, timed rainstorms and some heavy fogs, some miraculous escapes turned what should have been a rout of Washington, a capture of Washington, and, uh, and just the, the total annihilation of the Continental Army turns into a successful retreat from the island of Manhattan, which retreat you don't really associate with victory, but compared to what was about to happen with them, that is what where it's at. So one of the stories that's frequently told is that Washington had set up a line of troops on the east side of uh, Manhattan at, at a place called Kipps Bay, and he thought that it was crucial that they maintain a line right here in this area, because if, 
if the, the British were able to land on Manhattan and establish a, a, a beachhead, that they would be able to basically take the island of Manhattan and there would be nothing that they could do to stop them if they were able to get a foothold in there, which turns out to be uh, exactly true. That's exactly what was going to uh, happen, and it is what ends up happening. He, he, he thought that they had to hold the city. And so he heard cannon fire, he heard musket shots out towards where he had established this line of soldiers, and he rode toward the fighting to see if the line would hold, because he knew that if the line fell, it would basically be all over. And as he rode up to this, uh, this place to gain a vantage point to see what was happening on the, what, what should have been basically the, the edge of Manhattan, as he rides up over a hill, he is overrun, not by the British, but by his own troops that are literally like have turned tail and run. They are sprinting back towards the center of Manhattan, getting away from uh, Kipps Bay. It's not the British that he is overrun by. It is the, the Continental Army troops running as fast as they can, literally chucking their guns because they weren't running fast enough, throwing their guns to the side because they had to Run and Washington, a man who prided himself on decorum, on uh, on on morality, on on kind of hope, being uh, remaining calm in these moments, keeping his cool. He lost his mind at these guys. He starts screaming and yelling at them. There's some uh, accounts that say that he cursed at them, which he never did. Uh, they were they were he was yelling at them. There's there's one account that said he got off his his horse and he started beating one of the guys because he was running. He was like. What do you think you are doing? You have to hold the line here. You have to stop this. The defense here is critical. In the end, it was to no avail. The line had been breached. The Continental Army was forced off to retreat uh, to the western side of the island where just kind of a perfectly timed fog gave them a way to escape and spared the army. Washington is, is reported to in that moment as he, as he comes up on all these troops that are, are leaving. And if you guys have, have uh, heard or listened to Hamilton, you know that this line is in there. Uh, he, he is said to have, have said, are these the men with which I am to defend America? Good God, do I have troops such as these? That was his response whenever he sees these guys that are running away. Like seriously, these are the guys that I've got in order to, to wage a, a battle. Uh, He was exasperated that he was supposed to win a war against the most powerful army in the world, and all he had was a bunch of guys that that, that turned tail and run at the moment of uh, the the first cannon fire and the first smoke from a rifle. Washington needed better troops. He needed trained troops. He needed more troops if he was going to beat the British, and he knew it. This morning, we're going to read a small portion of Scripture that makes me think that Jesus may have been able to identify with Washington just a little bit. Uh, Luke chapter 6 is where we are. Luke chapter 6, I'm going to read uh, just these few verses here. In these days, so this is after we just finished the the story about him kind of fighting with the the Pharisees a little bit. Luke makes the transition towards uh, a more general time period. He says, in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and he chose them from the twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who was called the zealot and Judas, the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. 
That's our text for this morning. That's it. That's all we're going to look at. No new doctrine here. No healings or anything that will blow your mind. Nothing spectacular. No profound teaching that is here. Just Jesus going off to pray and picking his team. That's it. That's all that we're looking at. Remarkably simple in its structure. Luke gives us no commentary on this. He doesn't tell us anything about this. We're not told anything about why Luke includes this list. We're not told, we're not told why he put it in there. We're not told the purpose it's supposed to serve. It's just kind of there, just stuck right in the middle of the narrative with no information. It's almost like Luke just kind of looked at this and said, I've got to list these guys somewhere because they're going to come into play later on in this story, so I'm going to stick it here, but I really got nothing else to add here. Uh, I'll just stick it in this transition point, uh, and that's all that you guys as readers really need to know about these guys anyway. And it's fitting that Luke does it this way, because that's exactly what this list is. Very unimportant in the grand scheme of things. It is a list of no name, nobody cares, nobodies from nowhere. That's what these guys are. Now, we hear some of these names, and some of these names are super familiar to us. But I'd bet if we were to take like a Bible quiz here and we had to name all 12 of the apostles, not a lot of us would get all of these. Uh, Not a lot of us would be able to name all 12. We might be able to knock out a few, but we probably wouldn't get all of them. Uh, It's the most ordinary list of guys you can imagine. There's a list of guys from the region of Galilee. A lot of them probably knew each other growing up. Probably not all of them, but some of them, they probably knew each other. These are 12 guys. Uh, Somewhere between four to seven of them are fishermen. One is a tax collector. One is a political terrorist. Uh, One wasn't from Galilee, would have been the truest outsider of the bunch. That would be Judas uh, Iscariot. He wasn't from Galilee. So uh, a couple of them are, are, are mama's boys. Uh, if, you, if you look in Matthew 20, we have this story of James and John, uh, of, his, of, of their mom coming to Jesus and basically uh, advocating for them and saying, hey, Jesus, whenever you become king, can you make sure that my son sit at your right and your left hand? Can you make sure that my guys are right there with you? My sons are right there with you? Now, I don't know. Some of y'all may be like, yeah, that's a good mom. That's what a good mom does. I can tell you that most guys are like, oh, mom, please don't do that. Please do not do that. And I just got to wonder if they were like upset with their their mom. But here's what I do know. The disciple, the rest of the, the, the other 12 got mad at them. They were like, seriously, guys, you're sending your mom to try to get you to climb the political ladder? Like, I guarantee you they got made fun of for that. Not to mention the fact that they were, uh, they, they were all mad at them for that. So we got a couple of mama's boys that are in there. Um, and, and, and we'll see as we go throughout the book of Luke, like, these guys just, they're a little bit dense. They don't get it. Like, as you're reading through the Gospels, one of the things that becomes really clear is these guys were of, like, average intellect. They weren't going to knock any, like, ACT scores out the roof. You're not going to read about them anywhere. They weren't going to, 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 to kill it. They were a little slow on the uptake. Jesus teaches and teaches and teaches. And then he goes to try to make an application. And, and he's like, seriously, guys? Y'all missed what? Did, did y'all hear anything that I just said? Did you hear this at all and you still don't get it? For those of you all that are teachers in here, take heart. Jesus was a great teacher. 
And his students were still like, I don't get it. I don't understand what it is that you're trying to say. Let, I, I want to read this just because I think it's so revealing of who the disciples were, the kind of people that Jesus chose for this team. So this is Matthew chapter 15. You can turn there if you want. Matthew uh, chapter 15. Just read this story. Uh, in verse 10, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And then the disciples came to him and asked, I'm reading this from the NIV, by the way, a little bit different translation, and you'll see why here in just a minute. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know what the Phar- that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So basically Jesus gives this teaching, and the disciples come back, and he's like, they're like, hey, you're making, you're making the Pharisees mad, Jesus. And he's like, I know, that's kind of the point. Uh, he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said, explain the parable to us. So Jesus says it's the blind leading the blind. Like It's not a complicated parable, right? And and Peter's like, you're going to have to explain all this to me. You're going to have to explain this defiling stuff and the blind leading the blind. We don't get it. And then I love the way the NIV translates this in verse 16. Are you still so dull? That's how Jesus replies back to him. Now, the ESV, it's, it's a little more proper. It's like, you still don't have understanding. The NIV is like, are you an idiot? Seriously, Peter, you don't understand this. This is not complicated at all. Don't you see that whatever enters the, the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So Jesus is like, let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf for you, Peter, because you are not, you're not picking up on this stuff. Uh, I I imagine at this point, Jesus and Washington could have had a good conversation with each other. Like, these are the guys that we've got. These are the guys that we've got in order to do this. Are these, I I can imagine Jesus is like, when he goes away to pray that night, he's like, Father, are these really the men you want me to have? Can we have a do-over at this point? I would like to go find someone else. Are these the guys that are supposed to take my message when I'm gone? Because... This is not looking good right now at all. Um, the, it, this is the, the, the list. This is the guys that we've got here. This is the guys that, that Jesus goes and, and, and recruits and brings onto the team. Honestly, the only one of these, these guys that I think just kind of on the initial list is even like a little bit interesting is Simon the Zealot. That dude has a little bit of a background that we can kind of piece together. The Bible says almost nothing about him other than the fact that he was a zealot. Um, and so from the outside, we can, we can glean a little bit of information about him. The zealots were essentially a political party that was radically committed to the cause of Jewish independence. Uh, these guys were known for their level of devotion, hence the name zealot. They were zealous for political independence. Depending on the sect that he ran with, depending on the type of zealot that he was, he may have been more like a political terrorist than just uh, a very zealous guy. Some of these guys were known to carry around daggers in their cloak, and if they ever came upon a Roman soldier who was out on patrol by himself, kind of got off away from everyone else, they would stab the Roman soldiers and leave them for dead. 
if they ever got the opportunity. That's the kind of guy that he may have been. So that guy, I think, is a little bit interesting. Uh, but, but he's nothing special in the sense of he brings a whole lot to the team. He's not anybody that the Bible talks about any more other than what we get in the list. The only other thing we know about him is that he was in the upper room after the resurrection. He was one of the disciples that was there. That's the only other time the Bible talks about him outside of the lists that Mark and Matthew give us. No one would have known this guy's name. He wouldn't have stood out in a crowd. He wouldn't have been anything. Part of what makes him so interesting is that he is on this list, and so is Matthew. Two completely opposite ends of the political spectrum. One, a a, a devotee of Israel's independence to the point of being zealous for it, of maybe even killing for Israel's independence, and the other, uh, getting rich on being in business with Rome and partnering in Rome in the oppression and rule of his own people by the Romans. That is as opposite as you get. I know we think Republican and Democrat is as opposite as you get. These guys are like even further out on the extremes of the spectrum here. These guys are far apart uh, in in, in how they view the world. They are, this is not red and blue. This is black and white, right? Completely different. Far extremes. Yet here they are on the same list together. If for the sake of making the obvious point, whatever our, our, our political affiliations are, if we choose to have political affiliations, for crying out loud, we can go to church together and we can have a conversation about Jesus together. It is not about political uh, ideologies that, that unites us in this place. It is about Jesus. That's for free and really easy for us to see here, right? Like it's, it's right there. This is not the kind of group that you would put together if you were looking for team chemistry or for synergy, right? If, if you're reading the latest business, this is not, you don't read like good to great and then go put this team together. This is not how that works. You don't do that. In fact, there's literally nothing in this list that, that, would, put the, that would bring this, this group together for a dinner. There's nothing, this list should not sit down together for a dinner, there's nothing. It's part of the, 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 the apologetic or the argument in favor of Christianity, uh, in, in my opinion. That these were the men that were responsible for the spread of Christianity after Jesus was gone. If Jesus wasn't who he said he was, there's nothing that would unite this group of men. Not one thing. Nothing on this world would unite them. They would disagree on just about everything else. They wouldn't be able to have a conversation with one another, let alone go on mission together. There's no reason they should exist. This group, for all intents and purposes, should not be there. Yet, here they are, recorded by three different gospel writers. And even even those that would argue against Christianity don't argue that these guys were the 12 guys. These are the guys. This was plan A. This was the plan. This is the, the A-team. Y'all ever watch the A-team? Show of hands. Who watched the A-team? All right, that's good. Because whenever I put this, uh, this, this graphic up here, we were looking at it beforehand. Uh, back, back here in the back, Isaiah, my son, who's 13, he was like, I have no idea who, the who are these guys. He had no idea. 
what, what got made me a little nervous is Andrew was like, I don't know who these guys are either. Yeah, so, so they, they didn't know who the, who the A-team was. So for, for, for the record, the A-team is, these guys are like misfits, right? But what's cool about these guys is they make a team because they all kind of bring their own like, like part to the team, right? They all have their different, their different strengths and weaknesses, and together they make this like, this like odd group of people that, that come together to form the, the A-team. But, but in all honesty, this group that we're talking about with the, with the, the 12 uh, apostles, they didn't bring any skills to the table except fishing. And like a tax collector who wasn't allowed to handle the money. Like that was it. That's the only skills that they brought to the table. This isn't like, like the A-team where you've got these guys. Like you, there's no Mr. T in this group. Like there's nobody that is supposed to be like the, the guy that brings this. They had nothing that would make a rabbi go and get these guys. What's interesting is not who is on this list, but who is not on this list. No scholars. No rabbis, no scribes, no trained theologians, no one educated, no one wealthy, just plain, ordinary men. Can you imagine how boring a TV show that would be, the A-team, and all you had is like, you just got like just boring guys. You just got like your ordinary, you got, you got like a couple of dads, and you just got, you just got boring guys, right? Nobody's going to watch that TV show. Nobody's going to write a book about those guys and whatever it is that they do. But that's who we've got, just just dudes. It's not the kind of list that you would say, those guys are going to change the world. N- nobody, nobody sees those guys walking with Jesus and is like, look at that crew. Those guys are going to change the world. They're like, look at that crew. What is Jesus doing? It must be all he could have gotten. He must not be a great teacher because that's all that he could have gotten. And, and, and what's interesting is that Jesus is the one that goes and gets them. That's not how it would have worked. Typically, what would have, what would have worked is they, that, that, that a rabbi would be approached by a student that would say, can I learn from you? Can I study under you, rabbi? But that's not how this worked. How this worked is Jesus went and found them. He went to the guys that were fishing. We saw that in chapter 5. He went to the guys that were fishing. He went to Matthew, and he said, you come follow me. You come and follow. He recruited his team. These guys are not hot recruits. These guys are not like, there's not other rabbis fighting over these guys saying, oh, I hope this guy comes to my school. Going to put him on the football team. That's not what's happening here. That doesn't happen at all. Nobody wanted these guys. But Jesus went and he got them. Made them disciples and now he officially taps them on the shoulder and says, you guys, you guys are my 12. You're my inner circle. I'm putting you guys in charge here. I need you to be the ones that are front and center with me. You guys are the guys. I think what's so interesting is how little we know about these guys. I mean, we know a little bit. We, we know more about Peter. We know a little bit more about some of the work that he did. We know about John. We know about some of these guys. We know about Matthew. Matthew wrote one of the Gospels. We have some of the stuff that is there, but there's a lot we don't know about these guys. Three of them, Simon the Zealot, James the son of Alphaeus, uh, and Jude or Thaddeus. That's probably the same person, depending on which list that you're reading. Uh, those three, we literally know nothing else about them besides this list. Nothing. This is all we know about them. 
If you're, if you're, if you're writing, uh, I remember I did this whenever I was in high school. I decided I was going to write a research paper about the 12 uh, apostles. Uh, and my plan was to kind of like break it up evenly. And then I kind of got to these last three guys and I'm like, I got one sentence. This is all we know about them. They were an apostle. That's it. It's all I can tell you about them. I don't know anything, anything else. There's nothing else there. The Bible doesn't mention them again. They don't, we don't have any books that they wrote. They don't have any miracles that they performed that the Bible records. No big sermons that they preached. Nothing is noted in Acts. We know nothing. Church history tells us a little bit about these guys. It tells us that all of them would eventually die for the name of Jesus, but that's not like officially recorded in any documents anywhere. Can you imagine? You are a nobody person from a nowhere town. You get chosen by this rabbi to come and be a follower. You become convinced that this rabbi is not just some rabbi, but he is in fact the Messiah, the Christ, the one that has come to, uh, that, that, that was prophesied and, they, and that you were told would eventually come. You find out he's there. You're then chosen to be one of his 12 inner circle apostles. The group that would go on to change the world with this message that you're taught by this rabbi. Yet when the books are written, nothing is said about you. Nothing is mentioned about your life. You are essentially forgotten. Now in a culture like ours, where we are told from as young as we can probably remember that our task in this world is to go and make our mark. That we're told from as, as young as we can remember, what, what, what are you told whenever you, you, you get a job? You need to go out and make a name for yourself. You go out and make a name for yourself, and then that's how you get promotions. That's how you get better jobs. You go make a name for yourself. If, if I were to say, hey, here's what, here's what I don't, I'm, I'm going to put this on my resume. I was one of the 12 apostles. That should, be, that should make a name for myself, right? I was one of the 12 guys given the task of changing the world with the message, the message of Christianity. That should get me a platform, right? That should get me a speaking gig at a conference somewhere, right? That should get me somewhere super important. But they're not mentioned again. We don't know anything else about them. I cannot tell you how much I love that the Holy Spirit has done this for us. I cannot tell you. I want you to hear me this morning. Our world is so full of messages that tell us that our life is a failure if we don't change the world, if we don't make our mark on the world, if we don't leave our legacy, if we don't make a name for ourselves, if our name doesn't end up on a building or if our name doesn't end up in other people's mouths, if we don't do something great, then then, then our life becomes something of a, of a lost cause, something of a, oh, what could have been. But can I tell you a beautiful truth from this list of disciples? That some of them we do know well. They did write books. Their sermons are memorable. They did have their names written for history to know. But some of them didn't. They just taught the truth of Jesus. They communicated his teaching, they communicated his kingdom, they communicated his resurrection, and then they died. And that's all that was required of them. Listen, I don't know what you feel like you need in your own life for your life to be successful. 
But these guys were the 12, one of the 12 apostles. And the only thing that was required of them for their life to be successful was they shared about the message of Jesus. And then they died. And that's it. Even in a Christian world that calls us to radical faith and extreme measures for our faith, that that sometimes the most extreme thing we can do is actually the simplest. Just take the next obedient step. I remember several conversations that I've had with college students over the year with over the years with with young people I've sat down with that were that are struggling to decide what's the next step in my life what is it that I need to do in my life and and inevitably what comes up is where do I need to go what do I need to do what what is the big move I need to do what needs to happen next what is the next great thing that needs to happen and convinced that the only path to a faithful life is to go to new places and to new extremes because that's what the, the, the life of following Jesus requires. Wanting to know what the latest opportunity that, that you kind of create for yourself uh, and, 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 and decide to pursue asking, hey, do you think, Pastor, this is the right path for, for me to go on? I, 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 I kind of called and set up this thing. I'm kind of going to go do this thing. Do you think that I should go and do this? And so many times my conversation goes, well, why do you feel like you need to go anywhere? Why do you feel like you need to do something? You talk like going to do something like great and grand is just a given of the Christian life. And the response inevitably is like, that is how it works, right? That's what I've been told. This is what we do. We go do great things for Jesus. We go do amazing things for Jesus. That's what a disciple does, right? Go and make disciples. And inevitably, my response is, well, maybe. Maybe you're supposed to go somewhere to make disciples, or maybe you're supposed to make disciples as you're going about what it is that you're doing. Right here in Jefferson City. Nobody's going to write a book about it. It's not exciting at all. It's not radical. But it might just be exactly what God is calling you to do. Just be a faithful person right here. Sometimes Jesus calls us to a radical faith, just like Peter in the book of Acts. Escaping from prisons, preaching messages where thousands of people get saved. And sometimes Jesus calls us to be like Thaddeus. We know nothing about you except that you were faithful and you died. Praise God, both models are models of faithfulness, not just one. This list is, is, is evidence that the, the picture of, of a disciple is a very simple one. Continued obedience to Jesus. That's it. Continued obedience to Jesus. Once again, I, I bring this, this book up, this t- the title of this book all the time, because I think it is so perfect for so, the, the antidote for so much that we get wrong in our Christianity today. Uh, but Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I love the way that, 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 uh, that Peterson uh, finishes out his book. In the, in the 20th, uh, 
the, the, the 20th anniversary edition of his book, he has a little epilogue to this, uh, to this book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction. Um, that title actually comes from a, sitting, uh, a sentence that is, is written by a, a, a philosopher, uh, Nietzsche. And that the, the philosopher was, he's an atheist known for the, the, the phrase, God is dead. Um, if you've seen the, the bad movie, God is not dead, it's, it's, it's trying to like, like fight against that, right? So, but if you, so if you know that, that that's, this is what he was famous for. Um, and he ridiculed Christianity and Christians all throughout his life. And uh, he, so Peterson writes this. This is what he says uh, at the end of this book. It's a little bit of a long quote, but just hang with me here. He says, I sometimes amuse myself uh, by imagining that, that Nietzsche, who pronounced the death of God and who is now long dead himself, showing up in my study as I'm writing my books. He looks over my bookshelves and he sees part of a sentence he wrote as a title on one of the books. He learns that I wrote the book. He beams. How pleased he is to find that I have kept his wonderful sentence, a long obedience in the same direction, in circulation into the third Christian millennium. Then he takes the book off the shelf and he looks through it. His face furrows into an angry frown. The old atheist was convinced that Christians, by promoting the weak and ineffectual Jesus to keep the weakest, spiritually diseased, and morally unfit and inferior parts of the population alive and reproducing, were a malign influence on civilization and would be the ruin of us all. He thought he'd delivered the death blow when he announced that God is dead. And now he finds us still at it. I love imagining him standing there, angry and appalled, beard smoking, astonished that these weak, inadequate, ineffectual, unfit Christians are still alive and still reproducing. I love that. I think that is great. Peterson saying, yeah, like we're, we're not going to deny, yes, us, us, us unqualified, ineffectual, inadequate Christians are still at it, still doing the thing, still taking the next step of obedience. Friends, this morning, as we sit here in Jefferson City in 2023, it's easy to feel like these men in the Bible are somehow different than us that they are somehow extraordinary, that these stories are far removed from us. It's easy to read these stories and say, I could never be these men. I could never just walk away and follow Jesus. I could never do that. But take comfort in knowing that these men are no different than us. God did not pick them for their talent or for their potential. In fact, we have no real idea why these guys were chosen. There's no indication given anywhere in Scripture why they were chosen other than the fact that Jesus prayed before he did it. Implying that he sought the Father and the Father said, go get these guys. These are the 12 that I want for you. These are the 12 men. So the only indication of why these men were chosen is because the Father said, these are the guys. And so it is with us. We are saved because Jesus came for us. Plain and simple. He came, he said, follow me, and we did. Just the same as these guys. Did God have bigger plans for these 12 men? Absolutely he did. God always has bigger plans for us than us. Always. No sense in trying to, to out-scheme or out-dream God and say, I've got an idea, God. Here's a great thing that I'm going to do for you. God always has bigger plans for us. 
Our task is to simply follow him where he leads. That's the task. A long obedience in the same direction. I love how one pastor says it. He says, most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. I remember when I felt the call to ministry, the call to preach, to go to seminary. I remember talking to Emily about it, what this call felt like, what it looked like in my life. I remember somebody asking me, I'm not sure if it was Emily or someone else, and I, she probably doesn't remember this conversation, but I do because I was, I was working on some stuff. I was processing some things at the time, but the question was asked why I felt called, that I have a message that I wanted to communicate or something that I felt like was lacking, that was out there, that I felt like God was calling me to, to, to go and to communicate. Was there something that was out there? And I said, I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know how to process this calling to come and do what it is that, I, that I'm doing. I just know that, that my experience with Jesus has taught me that there is something more to this life. There's something more to who we are. There's something more that is out there. And I want, I want other people to sense the same thing that I feel, that there is something more. I still feel that way today. But I, what, I've, what I've learned is that that sense of, of more can be felt, experienced, and known in the most mundane and boring places and ways. It doesn't mean whenever I say that there's something more to this life, it doesn't mean that there's like this higher emotional like, like, like high that we're chasing all the time that, man, I just got to know that there's, there's more so I've got to feel it all the time. That's not what I mean by that at all. There is more to this life. And sometimes you can feel this and you can know it and you can sense it. I can do that whenever I'm standing up here and I'm preaching a message. But sometimes it's in doing the dishes. Sometimes it's in driving the kids to whatever it is they've got going on. Picking them up from school. Taking them to school. And doing it every single day. Sometimes the more is in that. Sometimes the, the, the more it's trying to figure out what in the world it is we're going to eat for dinner again. Every single day. And then cooking it. And then doing the dishes again. Right? Sometimes the more that we are called to is in the midst of that. Yes, sometimes it's in singing great songs at conferences with our hands raised high. Sometimes it's in like an amazing conversation that we have with someone where we get to share the gospel. Sometimes it's in like powerful moments of counseling with people where you see people really get it or their lives are, are sustained or made better because you're able to walk with them. And sometimes it's just going to pick the kids up at school. All of, all of these things might just be mundane and boring and ordinary, but God is in all of that if we have the eyes to see it. I, lo I love Romans 12, 1 and 2. A lot of you guys would know those verses. You read those verses. I like how the message, how uh, Eugene Peterson, how he translate this, uh, translates this and writes this. Here's, here's the paraphrase of Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, so here's what I want you to do. This is... This is in response to uh, what God has done. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. 
and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for you or the best thing you can do for Him. I love that. Your ordinary sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life. It's so easy to convince ourselves that the the great things that we do for God are the things that God is looking for. And it may just be in the most boring things ever that that's where God is really wanting us to be faithful. Just showing up and going to work. Just putting one foot in front of the other. Just doing the next thing. Just doing... The, there's, there's so much more to be said about these apostles. There's so much more we could, we could talk about, specifically why there's 12 of them. That Jesus is showing that there is a new Israel that is being established in His teaching and in these men. But we'll get there later in Luke. For now, all I want us to see is this. All I want you to know this morning is this. If you feel very ordinary, very plain, very simple, if you feel very unimportant and unspectacular, you are right in a place where God can use you. That's exactly what these men were. Very unspectacular. If you feel like you aren't particularly useful or helpful or desirable, if you feel like you are the last one that would be picked in the New Testament gym class, then you are in a really good place where God can use you. You might just be the kind of ordinary person that God is calling to do something I want to say, like, it's even there like in the vernacular, I want to say do something amazing for him. But the, the amazing thing is just faithfulness. It's just obedience. It's just doing what it is that the Spirit calls us to in that moment. That is extraordinarily ordinary. And it's exactly what the Christian faith looks like. If you are unimpressive then you'd fit right in with these guys. I love how this plays out in the book of Acts. Turn to Acts 4. I want you to see it. It's just one verse, but I want you to see it. Turn to Acts chapter 4. If you write in your Bible, this is one to highlight. This is one to underline. I, I just, I love this one. I think it summarizes so well who these guys were. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. And this, this is how discipleship works. Now, when they saw, this is, this, is after, this is after Peter and John had been preaching a message that could have very easily gotten them killed and imprisoned, and did get them eventually killed and imprisoned. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. So, just stop right there for a second. They were, they were preaching with boldness. But the way they were preaching made them be like, these guys are n- not smart, right? This is the response whenever they hear Like, these guys aren't anything eloquent. These guys aren't philosophers. These guys aren't blowing our doors off with their rhetoric and their style. They're bold, but they're normal. They're ordinary guys. They're common. Is there anything more offensive to call someone in our culture today than just common? But that's what these guys were. They're common men. 
These men were astonished at their boldness and what was happening as they preached. Then it says, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. What was the secret to the success of these men? How was the world changed by these 12 men? All of whom would go on, history tells us, to die. Martyrs for their faith. Nothing to be gained, by the way, by, by, by like holding on to this Jesus story if he hadn't come back from the dead. Each one, if, if Jesus had died and had not been resurrected, each one would have been better off in their life if they had been like, hey, Rome, sorry, we were duped. Hey, Pharisees and, and, and all you religious gatekeepers, I'm sorry, he tricked us. We're not, we're, we're not smart. We're fishermen. We're common, we're common men. I, I am sorry that we did this to you guys. And they could have gone back to their life. They might have been ostracized a little bit, but they could have basically gone back to their life. These 12 men with nothing in common, nothing that unites them. But they would all go on to die. Because they knew it was true. Because they saw a risen Jesus. The only one who doesn't is Judas. And I think that Judas doesn't even have to wait for Jesus to be risen to realize what he did. That's why he commits suicide. But these other 11 men, they all go on to die as martyrs. Why? They all go on to be unified. These men have nothing in common. and They go on to be, to be tremendously unified. Why? Because they had seen Jesus. Because they'd been with Jesus. That's it. What had changed these ordinary, common men to make them so bold? Did they go to seminary? No. Did they go to Bible college? No. Did they go study under another rabbi and and, and learn all their Hebrew? No. They hadn't learned, but they still weren't educated. Had they suddenly gotten wealthy and powerful? No. Had their social status changed at all? No, if anything, it had gotten lower. What changed? They had been with Jesus. That's it. And in the end, that is all that matters. When people see me and hear me, this is what I want. This is my goal. This is what I want out of life. Perceive me as, as a common man, un- whatever, that is fine. I just want people to say, I don't know about this guy, but he's been with Jesus. What about you? I don't, I don't care if, if no one remembers my name a second after I'm gone. Well, what's that guy's name? That guy, he was the preacher. I don't know. I can't remember his name, but man, he, he'd been with Jesus. How many of you can think of an, of an older saint that you have spent time with, a, a grandparent or, or someone else in a church, in the church who, who like you're around them and you're like, man, I don't, 
I don't know what this guy's whole story is, but here's what I can tell you. He spent a lot of time with Jesus. That's all I want. That's my goal. And I think that's what discipleship looks like. That's the secret. It's it's not in knowing all kinds of stuff. It's in being with Jesus. And it made him bold. It made him stand up and preach. Sent him to their death. But they'd been with Jesus. So that's my question for you. When, when you, as you get older and as you, as you, as you, as people tell the story of you, I think about this sometimes now, I think about how like we, we sit around at my parents' house and we talk about what it was like growing up, right? We talk about, we, we talk about different stories from growing up and, and I, I think about how one of these days, like I'm going to be really, really old, hopefully, Lord willing, and my kids are going to be telling that story about me. And they're going to be telling a story like, oh, yeah, yeah, dad was like this. I'm not, real, I'm not real excited about how they're probably going to finish that sentence right now. But my hope is that, that I will become more and more like Jesus because I will be with Jesus. I will have spent time with Jesus. And that by the time the end comes for me, that that is what my kids will say about me, is that he's, he's been with Jesus. That's what I know about my dad. I hope that's what you guys can say about me as a pastor, and I hope that's what every person that you know can say about you. I don't know everything about that guy's story, but he's been with Jesus. That's discipleship. And you just keep doing the next ordinary thing in your ordinary life. And then somewhere along the line, yeah, God's going to do some amazing things. But amazing things happen because of ordinary obedience. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the testimony of these men. I thank you for their lives and for their, for, for their death. I thank you for what we know about some of these men. I thank you that we know nothing about some of these men. But I thank you that, that as your son was here on this earth, that the men that were chosen to be his apostles, that you sent him to choose, were unimpressive men. That we don't have some un, unreachable standard that we have, to, we have to climb to before we can follow. That the same call that went to them comes to us to follow Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would wreck hearts in here this morning that have said, no, I'm not going to put my nets down right now. Come back later. That we would lay it all down and follow Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.